Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning. Hey, there I am, loud and clear. Worship was incredible this morning. I have no idea how I'm going to get through the material I have for you in the normal allotted time. You may need to have grace for me, and if you need to go early while I'm still talking, I will not be offended. Go if you need to go. How about that? Does that work? (laughs) Ah, thank you, Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he read that, he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The gospel according to Luke continues the message found in the other gospels that we've been studying. Good news is proclaimed. The king and kingdom is announced. Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled left and right. People are called to have faith and follow Jesus. It tells of his crucifixion and resurrection. And the same message comes across. Jesus came and this changes everything. Today we're going to continue the series we call, Hello, My Name is Jesus. We're focusing on the life and ministry of Jesus, who he is and what he did, as it's recorded in the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the last two weeks in the series. We're going to talk about the gospel according to Luke, because we did John last time. We did a little swip swap there. Hopefully you're tracking with that. I'm excited to dig into it with you today, but I wanted you to know the plan, okay? Sometimes it's good to have a frame of reference for where we're going so you can receive what is being said right now. The plan is today to talk about the context for this book, and then to do like, it's kind of going to be rapid fire. You got to listen fast, okay? Can you listen fast today? It's going to be machine gun rapid fire. We're going to follow some themes that run through Luke. Three themes, actually, through Luke. So it's like high level from the Black Hawk helicopter as we fly by, okay? And then next week, we're going to do a couple of deep dives into passages from the gospel according to Luke. Does that make sense and sound good? Good, because that's what we're doing. (laughs) Okay, so who is Luke? Luke is not a disciple of Jesus um, in the sense that he didn't walk around with Jesus as Jesus did his ministry. Um, He wasn't even a Jewish person. He was a Gentile, which means not Jewish. Okay, Um, Matthew and John were disciples that walked with Jesus. They were uh, two of the 12. Mark was like an assistant to Peter, so he's got that connection to the 12, but Luke's a little different, isn't he? Um, He spent significant time with the apostle Paul. Paul calls him a fellow worker. He writes this, the gospel according to Luke, and he also writes the book of Acts, which is sort of like a sequel. And actually in chapter 16 of Acts, the, the wording changes from third person to saying we and us, because Luke is there for a bunch of what happens in the book of Acts. In Colossians 4, we find out that he's called the beloved physician. He's talked about three times by name in the New Testament. And like I said, Paul calls him a fellow worker. Okay. We've been spending some time with my nephew Eli in the last couple of days. And Eli loves pie. And being an engineer, former engineer, I love charts. So I made a pie chart. 
this morning, and I love bad jokes, dad jokes. Anyways, they're pretty much the same. Okay, if you were to take all the words written in your entire New Testament, this would take a long time to count them up, but if you counted them all up, and then you said, who wrote these words? Who wrote these words? And you divided it up into a pie chart, it would look like this. Luke wrote more than anyone. Is that surprising? Yeah, you probably thought Paul would have written the most. I could have done a quiz first and made you feel bad, but I don't like to make you feel bad. So even if you give Paul Hebrews, which is questionable, whether he wrote it, um, Luke still wins in the word count. John's third, you think of the Gospel of John, which is pretty long, three letters in the book of Revelation, so he had a lot to say. And then 25% is like everyone else. So Luke is an important author for us to pay attention to. Um, who did he write this for? When? How? These are good questions. So I'm going to answer them for you. Uh, he wrote primarily for Gentile Christians, non-Jewish people. Matthew writes primarily for Jews. Uh, Mark writes mainly for Gentiles in Rome is the prevailing thought. Uh, John writes for a mixed audience, Jews and Gentiles. It's kind of a mixture, but Luke is primarily for Gentile Christians. And he writes in the mid-60s. So this is approximately 30 years after Jesus uh, died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. He writes at a time when Mark, Matthew, and many of the New Testament letters are already in circulation. And at a time when the Christian community was suffering persecution under Claudius in the Roman, Roman Empire. So he writes, oh, I, I didn't want to go there yet. He writes at a time under persecution. So he writes to affirm for believers that they can trust what they believe in. I think I got to have myself. We'll come back to that. He writes with a really strong command of the Greek language. So um, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And at some point it was translated into Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. Which is fun to say. You might want to try it. Septuagint. And in the gospel according to Luke, there's all this Septuagint Greek woven into it. He's, he's got a strong command of the language. You look at Matthew and he's got this Greek with a lot of Jewish influence. That kind of makes sense. Mark writes with not so stellar Greek, which kind of makes sense too, right? The whole man of action, let's get down to business thing like Peter shared with us, which I love. That was hilarious. Uh, I won't do the song. Uh, but who got time for grammar? Let's write about Jesus is Mark's take on the whole thing. John writes with simple Greek, but it's very symbolic. And then Luke comes along with this elegant, elegant, intricate use of the Greek language, which I think is a unique thing about Luke. And he writes with a bit of a documentary style. He has a preface for his book. Let's read it real quick. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning, concerning the things you have been taught. Those are the first four verses of the gospel according to Luke. An orderly account based on eyewitness and apostolic testimonies. He followed these things closely. And he talks about Theophilus, which means lover of God. 
We think that what that is is actually the person who commissioned Luke to write this account of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, likely a wealthy benefactor paying for the work to be done. And so Luke has this sort of commissioned documentary style, but he's also got something else going on. And I, I put it this way. I think this book is written with a surgeon's precision and an artist's eye for composition. He really does both things. He's got this literary, artistic, subtle approach. So you got to pay attention when you read Luke. Now, Matthew's organized. There's a focus on the fulfillment of prophecy. Mark moves fast and it's action-oriented. John's symbolic, like we said. It's really personal, too, and uses a lot of paradox. But Luke sort of weaves things in and through the narratives of what's happening in the life of ministry of Jesus. He does more alluding to than direct quoting from scriptures, and he'll put things together for you that you have to spend time to understand and start to pull apart. He speaks to us through the composition of the book itself. Isn't that cool? You could spend a lot of time studying Luke. The other Gospels are great too. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But that's what's cool about Luke. And so, like I said, when I got ahead of myself, his purpose in writing is to affirm for these Gentile Christians suffering persecution that, hey, what you've heard about Jesus, the guy you've put your faith in, this Christianity is good. You can trust in it. Be steadfast, although you're being persecuted. Stand firm. And you know what? I think that's a good message for us to hear today as well, isn't it? In our turbulent times. Although we're not being persecuted by a Roman Empire, there's a lot going on in our world and in our individual lives. And it's a good message to hear that Jesus is real. You can put your trust in him, keep your trust in him, and stay steadfast. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) I looked at the clock. Hang with me, guys. All right, three themes. Machine gun at the ready. Lots of scripture references. We're going to move fast. Three themes in the gospel according to Luke. Salvation from sin. The spirit is in the spotlight. And stunning shifts. A lot of S's to help you remember it. Salvation from sin, spirit in the spotlight, and stunning shifts. Let's start with salvation from sin. This book is dripping with the message of salvation. It's everywhere. And I'm going to shoot it at you like a machine gun. The last book of the Old Testament as it's organized is Malachi. And it ends with this promise of one who would come and prepare the way for the day of the Lord. To prepare the way for Jesus as we read about it now in the New Testament. Jesus is the arrival of the Lord that was promised. And Luke is saying, here he is. Salvation has come. Did you know the name Jesus means Yahweh saves? God saves. It's the Greek version of the Old Testament name Joshua. And so here Jesus is on the scene to save his people. Mary is told to name her baby Jesus by the angel. You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name God saves. That's cool. Her response is, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. At the birth of John the Baptist, his father Zachariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And what he says is, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up what? A horn of salvation 
for us in the house of his servant David. An angel announces to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, and what does he say to them? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Simeon holds baby Jesus at the temple, and what does he say? My eyes have seen your salvation, as he praises the Lord. And in chapter 3, Luke tells us that in Jesus, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Those are just examples from the first three chapters. My notes were 50 pages long at one point, but I pared them down. <laughs> Luke is clear. Jesus is here bringing the salvation of God to the earth. He's here to save us from our sins. More machine gunning. In chapter 5, he says to the paralytic before he heals him, your sins are forgiven you. In chapter 7, a woman anoints Jesus' feet, and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. People ask, why does Jesus eat with sinners? And what he says is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When he's hanging on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After his resurrection, he walks with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He explains what was written about him in the Old Testament. And then he, he kind of breaks it all down for him, and he, he sums it up at the end. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus came to bring salvation from sins. Another way that it's mentioned is that he came to seek and save the lost. That's in chapter 19 when he comes to the house of Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house, Zacchaeus' house. He's also a son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's how Jesus refers to himself, came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is on mission to save, to forgive sins, to find the lost and bring them home. That's what he's up to in all the Gospels. But it's emphasized in the Gospel according to Luke. The words save, saving, salvation, and Savior are used like 25 times. So like I said, I just picked a few, quite a few, <laughs> to share with you this morning. It's, more, it's used more than any other. Uh, no other Gospel uses these terms more than Luke. So the message that comes across, if I were to put it in my own words, is that Jesus brings salvation in every word he speaks, in every body he heals, and in every soul that he delivers. And my question to you is, have you experienced the salvation of Jesus for yourself? Has he forgiven your sins? Okay, theme one complete, theme two now in progress. The Spirit is in the spotlight. The words Holy Spirit used together five times in Matthew, four times in Mark, three times in John. If you're not an engineer or a mathematician, that's 12 total. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have caught it either that going that fast. 12 times the words Holy Spirit are used in the other three Gospels. How many times in Luke? 13. Eli knows. <laughs> we, did, we did Bible quiz in the van the other night. <laughs> so, <laughs> well played, Eli. I'm proud of you. 
Oh, man. So this is not one of the 13. This is outside of those 13. When Jesus returns from the wilderness and his temptation, Luke's first recorded words of Jesus as he begins his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Chapter one begins with Gabriel telling Zechariah he's going to have a son, John the Baptist, spoiler alert. And what does he say about the child? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Okay, so the start of Jesus' ministry, and then I've rewound for you back to chapter one. John's going to be filled with the Spirit. Gabriel's next visit is to Mary, and he tells her about how she's going to conceive the Messiah. And how's this going to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Next, Elizabeth and Mary, pregnant, get together. And what happens? Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm like, who's next? <laughs> well, it's Zechariah. <laughs> He's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies at the birth of his son. See that reference there, 167? That's chapter 1, verse 67. All that stuff is in chapter 1. Hello! <laughs> Luke's telling us something. The Holy Spirit is important. He's actually shouting from the rooftops here on how he composed this work to say the Holy Spirit that you've heard about, Gentile Christians, and hopefully you've experienced for yourself, is at work in the salvation that came through Jesus. The Spirit empowers every key player in the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. And the Spirit descends upon him like a dove when he's baptized as well. Even babies in the womb are being filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? The Spirit has the spotlight. In chapter 2, there's this really interesting trio. Simeon's this man who's righteous and devout. He's faithfully waiting for the promises that he reads about in what we call the Old Testament. He's waiting for the Messiah to come. And it talks about the Holy Spirit three times in this brief little mention of a guy named Simeon. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that the Messiah was, uh, that he would see the Messiah for himself. And the Holy Spirit led him to the temple the day that he meets Jesus. Simeon is an example and a template for all believers and for us today, you guys. Live a life that hosts the Spirit, like Simeon. Be the kind of person the Holy Spirit can rest upon. Look and listen. Be waiting for the Spirit to reveal to you what God is up to in your time and place. And be led by the Spirit in everyday life, like Simeon was when he went to the temple that day. You too can have the Holy Spirit upon you. It, he can reveal to you what God wants to say, and he can lead you through your life. What if Simeon hadn't? made a home for the Spirit in his heart? What if he hadn't looked and listened for what the Spirit would say? Or what if he hadn't been led by the Spirit that day? He would have missed out on a historic moment. I mean, Jesus was only a baby dedicated at the temple once. <laughs> and Simeon got to be there for it. Let's not miss out on what the Lord is doing today. Let's host the Spirit and be a part of it. Okay, one more thing about the Spirit. It makes so much sense to me that the guy who wrote the book of Acts, which includes the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit comes down like a mighty rushing wind and like tongues of fire on the believers before they're commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel, 
it makes sense to me that the Holy Spirit would be important as he writes about the life and ministry of Jesus. In um, chapter 3, there's one of these verses that's just like this huge, gigantic, in lights, flashing lights, pointing arrow to the day of Pentecost. He, uh, it's as John is talking about Jesus. John the Baptist is talking about Jesus here. He says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, who is mightier, mightier than I, is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Come on. That's theme two, the spirits in the spotlight. Theme three, stunning shifts. You know what I mean by that? Are you like, what in the world are we talking about? (laughs) We will look at it here this morning. The book of Luke has all of these stunning reversals. Where those who are high get low and those who are low get high are exalted, are given honor. (laughs) I realized what I said after I said it. I didn't mean anything by that. (laughs) There's a New Testament professor, actually at Asbury Theological Seminary, which I found out after I found this quote. His name's Ben Witherington. And this is what he says about the gospel according to Luke. One of the major themes is the theme of reversal. The least, the last, and the lost are going to become the first, the most, and the found in the kingdom of God. The least, the last, and the lost become the first, the most, and the found. That's what Jesus is up to. He said as much in chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name on account of me. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The poor... The hungry, the weeping, and the ridiculed rejoice in Jesus. Jesus is here, and he proclaims a kingdom in which you have great rewards, if that's you. You may be an outcast in society. People may look down on you from places of privilege and power. But in the kingdom of Jesus, you are great, and you have great reward you humble yourself and follow him. So let's trace this theme of stunning shifts or reversals a little bit. There's a few categories of people that really stand out in this area. The first is the poor, like I just read about. This is another one of the instances where Luke uses the word poor more than any other gospel. Jesus' mission statement at the start of his ministry that I started with this morning includes this um, statement. That Jesus says, God has anointed me to preach, to proclaim good news to the poor. When John the Baptist sends disciples to Jesus to say, hey, I'm in prison. I'm not so sure anymore. Can you confirm if you're the guy I thought you were? One of the things Jesus says is, yeah, you can believe in me, John, because the poor have good news preached to them. The gospel, according to Luke, is the only one of the four to record the story of the poor man Lazarus at the rich man's gate. 
Both men die, and when the poor man dies, he's carried by angels to a really great place, Abraham's side in heaven. The rich man dies, and there are no angels for him, and he ends up in Hades in torment. This is a striking point of reversal, and Jesus tells this story to Pharisees, who Luke just told us love money and reject Jesus. Those devoted to God will be like Lazarus, entering into eternal life. But those who reject Jesus and favor wealth, like the Pharisees, will find only torment waiting for them when they die. It's a point of stunning reversal. Jesus says things like, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He talks to an extremely rich man, and they have this conversation. And at the end, he says, hey, sell all you have and distribute to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Jesus comes to the house of Zacchaeus and offers him salvation. I mentioned that earlier. But he says salvation has come to this house after Zacchaeus says something really interesting. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus praises him for that and says, Salvation has come to this house today, because that's what I've come to do, seek and save the lost. Jesus also praises the devotion of a widow who puts in two small copper coins in the offering box. He says the wealthy people who gave a lot more gave out of their abundance, but she gave everything she had to live on. I can just picture him saying, great is her reward in heaven, although that's not in there at that point. It's consistent. And I bet angels were waiting to escort her, just like Lazarus when she died. Another category that we see in the reversals are Samaritans. Um, Samaritans are not exactly Jewish. (laughs) They're like a split from the Jewish nation. Anyways, uh, They hate each other, Jews and Samaritans. And so it's really significant when Jesus ministers to them or speaks favorably about them. Matthew and Mark don't really talk about Samaritans. John tells a story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And in Luke, we see a couple of mentions of Samaritans that are significant. In chapter 17, Jesus heals 10 lepers. He says, hey, go show yourself to the priests. Go through the ritual cleansing You'll be healed. And then when they're on the way, they are. All 10 are healed. And only one returns to praise God and to thank Jesus. And it's a Samaritan man. And Jesus praises him for that, for being thankful. In Luke chapter 10, this is the only gospel that records the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you may be familiar with. Jesus is talking with a man of standing, a scribe. He's honored and respected in this culture. And he has questions for Jesus. Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I'm following all the rules in the Old Testament here. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, love your neighbors, one of them. And he goes, well, who's my neighbor exactly? Like, could you define that so I don't have to worry about certain people? (laughs) And Jesus tells this parable where a priest and a Levite, religious leaders, honored men, pass by a wounded person and don't help them out. But then a Samaritan helps this Jewish person in trouble. 
the religious guys who have their church act all together, who are honored and respected in the culture, are the bad guys in Jesus' parable. And the hated Samaritan is the hero of the story. Because the Samaritan has the heart of God, a heart full of compassion, a heart that sacrificially gives. He gave of his time and his money to help someone in need. He didn't care about society's dividing lines. He just helped when help was needed. And Jesus says to the scribe, go be like the Samaritan. Jesus brings a stunning shift in the kingdom of God, not just the Samaritans, but Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. It's for all people. That's actually in the angel announcement. It says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When Simeon prophesies about Jesus when he's a baby, he says, he'll be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. That's a fulfillment of prophecies found in Isaiah. I threw the references up there for you if you want to go look it up. Jesus brings salvation for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Whatever category you find yourself in today, he came for you and he loves you. Another one of those little subtle Luke composition points that points this out to us is the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew, the genealogy goes from Abraham through to Jesus. In Luke, it goes backward from Jesus, not back to Abraham, but all the way to Adam, the son of God. He takes it all the way back to the very beginning, not of the Jewish nation, but of the world. That little thing just shows us um, that Jesus is Savior for all. That this story begins at the beginning of the entire human race. Thank you for your patience this morning with me. I have one more category of people that are part of the stunning shift in the gospel according to Luke, and it's women. And this one is just astounding. Astounding. And I bet I'll share with you some things you haven't noticed before. Um, <clears throat> women are given a hugely prominent position in this gospel. There are at least 23 parallel stories that pair men and women in the gospel according to Luke, okay? I'll show you a couple as examples, but there's at least 23 of these. I found a table. I didn't throw it on a slide, don't worry. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, then to Mary, that's a pair. Mary sings a song, then Zechariah sings a song. Man, woman, pair. Woman, man, pair. I said it in the backward order. Jesus' parents go to the temple to dedicate Jesus. Who do they meet? Simeon and Anna the prophetess. A pair. Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic man and a woman who anoints his feet. He says twice to men, your faith has saved you. How many times does he say it to women? Twice. <laughs> Sabbath healings. He heals a crippled woman and a lame man. And then in chapter 15, when he tells the story of a lost sheep, it's a shepherd man who finds the sheep. And who finds the lost coin? A woman. If you found this kind of balance in a book today, you'd think nothing of it. In our world, it's normal. We kind of think like, well, about half the population is male and about half is female. Of course you'd have half and half in the book. Of course someone who came to minister to all people would minister to half women and half men. It's not a big deal. You know, in our society, we're used to the push for balance and representation of men and women. 
equally. So it's normal. But if you imagine yourself in 60 AD, <laughs> when Luke wrote this, it's shocking. Women were literally second-class citizens in Rome, if a citizen at all. They were under the authority of a man. <laughs> Read about it. It's crazy. They couldn't vote or hold public office. Jewish culture was no different. They covered themselves up. Men wouldn't talk to women in public or even look at them. And they were not taught the scriptures. They weren't allowed to be disciples of a rabbi like men were. So a book written about Jesus' life and teaching with this much female representation is a huge deal. They're not only represented, but they're honored, greatly honored. Actually, humble women are set up as a striking contrast to proud men. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is sitting in the house of a proud, respected Pharisee having a meal. And he lets him have it. And it's in contrast to the woman sitting at his feet anointing him, who's immoral, a sinner. But recognize Jesus and worship him by anointing his feet. In Luke 13, Jesus calls out a synagogue ruler for being a hypocrite. And he calls a crippled woman. Right there, a daughter of Abraham, bestowing honor upon her. You guys are extremely patient. I just looked at the clock again. Okay, we're getting close. We're getting really close. At the beginning of the book of Luke, Zachariah is a priest. He's the honored man here. <laughs> and what happens to him? He literally gets shut up by the Spirit, <laughs> and he can't talk for like 10 months. The entire, uh, what's it called? The entire pregnancy of his wife, he can't talk because he didn't believe God when the angel told him that uh, Elizabeth was going to conceive. Who does believe the good news in the beginning of Luke? It's Mary, and it's Elizabeth. Who's the first to call Jesus Lord? Do you remember? Elizabeth. It's Elizabeth. Mary and Elizabeth get together when they're pregnant. Baby John the Baptist is in here and jumps in her womb. And she says, oh, I'm so blessed that the mother of my Lord would come to see me. She's the first to speak that Jesus is Lord. Whew. Mary's the first um, in spoken word in her song to tie the conception her womb of Jesus to the Old Testament promises for a Messiah. The women are the one speaking the good news, bringing the gospel, and the men are silent. That's a stunning shift and reversal. What Mary sings is actually this. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. <clears throat> Same thing happens when Jesus rises from the dead. Who goes to the tomb first? Who's visited by the angel and, and learns that Jesus is alive? And who is the first to share that news? It's the women. And then the men get on board too. But the women come first. It's also striking that when Jesus goes to Martha's house, her sister Mary sits at his feet and learns like a disciple of a rabbi. That's very significant. In Jesus' kingdom, women are honored, elevated, despite any social norms, because all are saved in the kingdom of God. 
All are filled with the Spirit, and all are called to share the good news. Right? It's not to put men down. I, I highlight all of those, you know, and proud men get, get put in their place. It's not to put men down. It's to bring the women up because they weren't. And we all are on equal footing in the kingdom of God. Jesus came to save every single one of us. This is how he put it in the Gospel of Luke in two different places. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So there's a machine gun look at Luke. And uh, I'm looking forward to next week coming back and uh, doing some deep dives into it with you guys. Mary Lee, would you come?